James Waters is currently the CTO of modern application platforms at VMware, but he has truly done it all. Whether it was working with large corporate companies or helping startups establish themselves in the private sector, James has been there. On this episode of IT Visionaries, James sits down to discuss some of the things he's learned along the way, including why he believes it's imperative for research and development teams to work side by side with clients. He also discusses what forced some of the changes we see in enterprise applications today and how these unprecedented times will shape technology moving forward. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. We are joined by special guest, James, what's going on? Hey, what's going on, Ian? Hi. Excited to have you on the show today. Um, we're going to be talking about a bunch of the really cool stuff going on at VMware and Pivotal. Going to get into your background. So first, how did you get started in technology in the first place? You know, like a, a lot of people my age, uh, I sort of was uh, in college uh, during the internet boom of the late 90s. And I got an engineering role at, a, at an internet company. And, uh, you know, the idea that uh, all this connectivity was going to change the world. Uh, thankful for all those internet pipes uh, right now during what we're going through in terms of working from home. But sort of like the, the original uh, dot-com boom pulled me into technology. Started learning a lot about the different layers of the stack, what made that all work. Got fascinated and uh, been basically... Uh, you know, 22 years of uh, continuing to learn. So it's been really fun. Walk me through what it means to be CTO of modern application platforms at VMware. Yeah, I mean, so I think the, the first thing is it's really a team sport and I work on a great team. So it's a little bit less around me and it's more about just finding ways of leveraging the awesome team we have. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, on the team, we're uh, lucky to be guided by uh, Ray O'Farrell, who was the CTO of all of VMware, one of the original people that helped start the technology at VMware, really long-term vision for VMware as a company as well as the market. And then we also have the creators of Kubernetes and uh, Craig McClucky and Joe Beta and the, the team that kind of incorporated them into VMware led under Paul Fazone. So I really work on this really all-star team of folks that have a lot of experience in terms of uh, enterprise infrastructure software. Uh, as well as uh, the latest trends in, you know, modern applications and containerization. So my role is primarily to help guide the uh, product and technology strategy, as well as interfacing a fair amount with our clients and making sure that what we're building is, is solving their needs on a day-to-day -day basis. So I split my time maybe 70%, 30% between internal development projects and 30% uh, with constant interface with clients. And uh, that always just keeps me really curious, right? Because it's that end-to-end -end loop of uh, technology meets outcome that I, I think is so fascinating. Uh, Kent Beck said once on this podcast around his experience at Facebook, there really is no technical win. You know, you really need to find uh, the, the thing that makes it work for the business. So I do try to be one of those folks that closes the loop with our, our customers 
and making sure that what we're doing really matters to them is giving them leverage. So I think it's a, I'm very, feel very lucky to, to have the role to look across uh, both sides of that. Yeah, that is fascinating. I didn't realize you worked with, uh, with customers so much. Um, is that just something that, you know, as you're, you know, building a refining product, like what is that, you know, something that you kind of developed? What was, what was the uh, impetus for that? I joke that I kind of have two jobs, you know, I do the, the normal day job and then also, you know, like building and um, being part of the R&D team. And then the customer stuff is really also a passion um, because you can't really solve these things in a vacuum. And so, you know, we have clients that are some of the largest enterprises in the world running us at 100,000, you know, plus container scale. And it really has affected their organizational models. Like they've changed the organization of their companies to better leverage our technology. It's not sort of like making a component uh, product. It's really a somewhat transformational set of technologies that affects how these leaders organize and prioritize their business. And that's where if you're almost not participating in that discussion, uh, you don't really see the end-to-end impact of the technology. So uh, it's passion-driven for me. Uh, I love the technology. I love building it. But I also really, really enjoy the partnership we have with some of the most you know, largest organizations in the world. And I guess for, for folks who don't know about Pivotal, can you share kind of the background for Pivotal as well? Sure. A little bit of a, a windy road there because I started at VMware in 2009 and 2010 working on a project that eventually got spun out into a company that uh, we labeled Pivotal. And we basically grew that technology into something that was big enough to be a public company and then ultimately reincorporated into VMware as a business unit. But I think the radical idea of Pivotal was essentially a modern application platform that also had a set of, um, you know, consulting services around it that would enable you to transform, transform your organization as well to be more around continuous delivery architectures. You know, Pivotal uh, partnered with some of these uh, large enterprises in the world to really take them from what I would call like the ITIL era where they were doing everything as maybe a year-long project, deploying once a year, um, doing things in uh, very kind of fine-grained swim lanes to moving it to be more of a continuous delivery. Like uh, the big idea of Pivotal was that we could come in and give you both the platform and the uh, you know, development framework as well as the consulting assistance to help you go from idea to production. And what I used to say, at least a week, I mean, sometimes a day. And the idea that you would have you know, user impact, user feedback on a core business application that could change every week um, in a secure and reliable way was a pretty radical idea five years ago, but it's, it's become much more de jure today. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm curious. So how, what was it like when the company got acquired and then, you know, now integrating with, you know, VMware, which is, you know, a, a, a Goliath in the industry for a long time and, and you know, cutting edge industry leader um, for many years. Yeah. I'll tell you why I'm kind of really excited about it is that uh, we at, at Pivotal had, part of the solution. But VMware, you know, I look at them as the number one infrastructure software company in the world, uh, you know, pure play infrastructure software. And we can now approach an organization and say, like, for all of the applications that you're running, uh, whether you just want to get efficiency benefits of a hypervisor, if you want to get the operational, uh, you know, uh, declarative automation improvements of containerization, uh, if you want to start to look at, you know, the developer benefits of developer experiences on those container platforms, the whole way up to microservices platforms that might allow you to do continuous delivery across complex organizations, we can be that 
essentially essential technology provider across that whole spectrum of their application portfolio. And what happened was, in, in my humble opinion, is that the movement that we started was was too important to just be a point product. It had to be part of this broader suite where uh, one of my favorite things is when a client just comes out of some discussions with us and they say, I'm just doing VMware. Like I'm doing the VMware solution. And it takes, it takes you know, thousands of engineers to start to build the scale of a project where a major enterprise can turn to you and say like, my strategy is this company. Once you see that that's the shape of the market, you start to get really passionate about working across the different divisions of VMware to really show up in that way for clients. So I've been, I've been having a lot of fun in the first 90 days of this. Yeah, that is really fun. It is kind of one of those uh, situations where the whole is now, you know, greater than the sum of the parts, right? Um, when you can kind of leverage the existing, you know, customer base and all those things. Tell me a little bit about the types of companies that you work with. I think, you know, one of the things about VMware is they're one of the most ubiquitous, you know, software offerings in the world. And, you know, I think they've gotten a scale of, you know, something around half a million clients. Uh, and so they're really everywhere. And at, at Pivotal, we were a little bit more focused on the Fortune 1000. And so I think part of what we've been doing is, is thinking about, okay, like how do we make the Fortune 1000 even more successful? But then how do we start to also, as my uh, colleague Craig McClucky uh, says very well, democratize some of these technologies we built uh, at Pivotal for everyone to use, even a you know, medium-sized company can start to enable developer workflows to differentiate so that you know, any group of five or six developers anywhere in the world could have two to 10x you know, the efficiency in terms of how they get code to production and operate it. Um, that's, a, that's a big part of our mission right now is to democratize a lot of some of the, the higher end technologies we've been using. Yeah. The, the way that, that the enterprise has been changing over the past few years, I'm curious, like what, what have you seen, you know, kind of from your time, you know, your last seven years kind of working on this to now, like what are some of those things that you've seen as, you know, huge kind of changes in the market? I mean, I know that's like a loaded question, but specifically, it seems like, you know, within what Pivotal was, you know, was building to the acquisition point, it's like, the, you know, the world completely changed with, with, you know, cloud native stuff and all of that. So, yeah, I think maybe I'd highlight it's my own personal perspective is that I think there was maybe a dark era for enterprise products, especially enterprise application products where the enterprise application space had been kind of in a war of adding features that might not always be necessary or, you know, might be a little academic, but more and more and more features, right? So enterprise products were really distinguished by like, oh, it's got these million checkboxes and it tries to do all these magic things. But, you know, by 08 or 09, they were so complicated and so few people could really use them with velocity what started to happen was all of a sudden, and this is the way I tell the story, like Paul Graham started Y Combinator and gave people, you know, gave four developers cloud technologies and said, go at it. Right. And I think the world really realized then as some of these startups started using cloud technologies and continuous delivery to really get to market quickly, that it wasn't just about, you know, having a really dense set of layers of enterprise technologies with all these features. You really had the design for velocity and resiliency. And that was a huge shift from kind of like the more sales-driven architectures that some of the traditional enterprise products had had. And so I watched that firsthand in a technology we had called uh, Spring Boot, where it used to be that 
you know, Java was differentiated as Java, Java development was differentiated by having, you know, these super expensive million um, feature kind of environments. And suddenly Spring Boot was like, how do you just get an API to production today? Let's optimize for that experience. And the thing took off like a rocket. And like every second and a half right now, uh, a developer starts a new project with Spring Boot. And I think that's really part of the, uh, you know, the history here is that what we were designing to do radically shifted towards resiliency and velocity, not just sort of fancy whiz bang tunability and features. And I don't even know what some of these features really did in the end of the day, but they, they seemed like uh, <laughs> a good idea at the time. But I would say 0809 is when enterprises kind of hit that trough and startups started to outpace them. And I think the decade following that is when enterprises realized that they needed to compete at startup speed. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I would add and be curious to your thoughts on like self-service being something like you look at back in the day when, you know, these implementations and these huge implementation partners and a lot of that stuff obviously still happens in consulting firms and all that. And so startups responded by kind of saying like, well, we can't do any of that. So we're going to make it self-serve. You know, we're going to make you to be able to make a buying decision right away, get started, you know, more or less right away with a, you know, customer success team kind of like do everything we can to keep you and hope you don't churn. Yeah. And I think the change was really to what I would call like a developer first mindset for infrastructure and not to be cheesy about it, but that like you essentially unleash human potential when you give smart people API contracts that they can just get going and and go do, you know, developer first organizations where you can really say like every asset that we have in this company is something that a smart developer could sit down tomorrow, leverage and get to production quickly that is the still long game that we're playing to say like, you know, API first designs for both infrastructure and applications that enable that kind of creativity and velocity. That's a big change from, you know, to be fair, you know, in the, in the early two thousands, late nineties, like when I started in technology, the computers were barely fast enough to even run these big robust systems. Like you were have to pay a million dollars for a server big enough to run a database that mattered. And I think, you know, we went slow, you know, my first day at uh, Sun Microsystems in 2001, one of the projects I kind of walked through was that we would do a server sizing assessment for a client for six weeks. Mm. And, you know, like, I just think back of where we were in technologies, it was because these things were expensive, right? You were paying a million dollars for a server, it's worth thinking about how much you really need. Uh, (laughs) uh, Whereas today with, you know, like virtualization and cloud API provisioning, you just respond on demand through an API to size the environment for the application. And a lot of what Kubernetes has done is it said like, here's your declarative manifest. You can grab infrastructure and go. But that, that really wasn't where we were in terms of the economics of computing in the early 2000s. It was still very expensive just to stand things up. Yeah, that's a great point. That's super fascinating. Wow, six weeks. Yeah, I'm just sorry. Just like six weeks server sizing assessment. Like, and now we have cloud. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the funny things that like happened where like lean startup, I think, what was that 15 years ago at this point or something like that, that, that came out? No, I'm not sure on the date, but yeah. 2011 probably. So it was like eight years ago. Um, yeah. But you just look at between that and now and the speed in which you could deliver versus like if you were doing the same exact thing, like that's why, you know, back in 2001 and, you know, the dot-com stuff, it's like everybody's making, you're like, oh, I can make a website, right? That can do 
you know, X, Y, and Z in scale. And now it's like, you can make a mobile application. That's, I mean, you look at even the companies that are, you know, like the Postmates or, you know, Uber Lyft or whatever, that put all of their engineering resources into just their app. And like, you know, the amount of resources that just go into, you know, companies that are built as a single application essentially is really wild. I mean, can, comparing that to like, you know, if you had flashed back to 2001 and told yourself like, you know, companies are going to be built just off of this one thing. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing to always follow is sort of Moore's law, which is just continue to make computers faster and faster and faster, at least over the last, you know, um, 40, 50 years, which is, it's just been an incredible provider. It's changed it from the point where, you know, it's economically efficient for a small team to quickly provision and procure computing capacity that could be world changing in terms of the application that it creates. And I think that's a big part of what, what really changes. It used to have this barrier to entry. Like you had to, I think a friend of mine in the, in, you know, 99, you know, he was starting this basic e-commerce website and he needed $150,000 just to buy a one server that was strong enough to run it. Yeah. <laughs> so the barriers of entry used to be huge. So you didn't need as much velocity. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a really great time. So you have been really involved in R and D in your career. And I'm curious, like from an R and D perspective, like how do you look at, you know, building a team of innovation and kind of working on those sort of things with all the stuff that we just said is like the fact that you can, you know, startups do, you know, the way that they do quote unquote R and D is like essentially, you know, customer development refinement, you know, back to the, back to that. I'm curious, like how has your approach changed for looking at R and D? I think there's kind of two things I personally believe in there. You know, the first is, you know, customer centricity can and will matter at some point in a product development cycle. It doesn't mean you can go out to a customer with no ideas and no sense of direction of where you want to go and you've built nothing. Like it's not purely about customer interviews, but I think understanding the shape of the market through the customer's eyes allows you to be more efficient in terms of how you do R&D. That is a, a kind of a core belief that I have. Um, so in some ways working to cross the cultures of the customer and the engineer is just a big part of what day-to-day product people do. So I certainly have learned that that's harder than you think, uh, because those people don't by routine, just talk to each other freely, right? You have to kind of bring them together. I think the other thing that I learned is that, you know, uh, portfolio theory and not always not understanding that you don't know what might work and having a couple different you know, irons in the fire at any one given time may help, you know, like uh, spring boot at, at pivotal during that time, it wasn't really like this top down plan that we're going to go rejuvenate the Java development market through this approach, this approach. I think it started with a couple of smart engineers noticing some, th- some things and patterns in the community. And then that thing started taking off. And I think the, the manager's role is really to notice what's working and then pile resources on and do more of it. So I think, you know, if the leadership can help articulate the market and the customer focus, as well as observing what's working and knowing when to double down on what's working, those are, those are two big lessons that at least I've learned in addition to the kind of normal process hygiene I think we all go through. Can you share some, you know, for lack of a better term, like kind of case studies of, of huge customers that you've worked with recently and like what this sort of engagement looks like? Yeah, I think... 
our top clients basically run us at the 100,000 container scale right now of um, this Tanzu platform, Tanzu set of technologies that we have. You know, one client told me, uh, this is where, you know, the client truth does matter to me in a casual way. So I'm having dinner with a client in Seattle. Well, hold on. Sorry, really quick. I, I, and I'm curious yeah. too, like, so who are you talking directly to a CTO, a CIO? Like, you know, who are the folks that you're working like directly with on this? Yeah. So this is in this case, a CTO and a CIO, and I'm having a, a check-in dinner with them. This is the two jobs, you know, uh, product and R&D during the day. And then uh, sometimes customer networking at night used to be my routine back when we were all traveling. And uh, the client turns to me kind of cutting their meal and said, you know, James, it used to take us 500 people to operate our core applications. And now it takes six. And uh, our SLAs are, uh, you know, essentially more than 60% improved in terms of availability, mean time to repair. Those are some of these moments where you realize that people were treating every application and every application's configuration and every application's infrastructure as a one-off which meant that there was a linear scale between applications and operational burden. Does that make sense? You know, like they were basically assigning projects and then they assigned people to projects and then operational people to projects. Yeah. And what happened when they went to this more, uh, you know, containerized, distributed uh, Tanzu infrastructure approach is that they suddenly realized that every application could be treated in a similar set of control loops by the platform. And then, you know, the CIO turned to me and said, I just need more and more and more into this operational model. I need to transform from my old project-based operational model to this new, you know, kind of platform approach of infrastructure. I think that's, that's the thing, you know, like um, we generalized a whole category of behaviors that used to be run project to project into a substrate that could handle all of them as, you know, at once. So that was a big deal. The other thing that happened was that it used to take them, you know, they might have pushed features to their customers two or three times a year on their major projects. And I think that same company told me that they were doing, you know, 10 to 20x more frequent feature releases now so that the business could honestly come into their office on a Monday morning and by that Friday or the following Friday have a meaningful chunk of business value, you know, delivered to the client. And I think those are it's funny how quickly then clients take that for granted and that CIO left that discussion saying, I'm going to take a Tanzu first rule across everything we do. Uh, Cause there's sort of no looking back once you see a 500 to six, you know, um, transformation in terms of operating burden and a 10 X improvement in deployments. But the other thing I've learned though, is they're never satisfied. So, you know, that same CIO comes back six months later and said, okay, what's next? I want more. I want more. I want more. I think that's the awesome thing about the technology market is that people are never satisfied. You know, they always, they always want to see what's that next big hit you're going to bring me. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's really, that's a really insightful piece. Never celebrate for too long because they'll be back hungry soon. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Any stuff that you've heard from the market um, and, and your customers that really surprised you? Here's the actually maybe a different answer is I'm really, I've learned like the one thing my customer interactions and travel to see customers and really learn about the market firsthand, you know, uh, in addition to the product and R&D job has taught me is how similar all these companies' experiences really are in these transformations or how related they are. Like you start almost having deja vu in some of the conversations because they're hitting the same friction points. 
or they're seeing the same opportunities. And I think that's what really gives me passion about kind of our role in helping these companies, which is that not only do we give them the products, but we also give them the advice and understandings of how to make that transition to this new, new place. So I think the thing that has surprised me is, you know, how much in common a lot of these companies have in terms of the challenges they're facing and the potential of the solutions. Um, and I didn't really know before I saw it firsthand um, how standardized a lot of that would be. You know, there's a huge amount of variance. I don't mean to overstate it, but there really are these essential patterns, these technology markets and enterprises that all these companies are going through at once. And it's, it's pretty inspiring to be on the, the vendor side because you actually can see across all of that opportunity in a way that almost no one else can because they're involved in their individual yeah. routines. But I think that's the most kind of surprising thing for me to see firsthand. Yeah, that's a great point. Do you think that, you know, obviously we're kind of, um, you know, in the middle of this pandemic and, uh, you know, it's obviously like, you know, sad and tragic. And, and I think people are kind of trying to figure out how to, you know, do what they need to do uh, from an organizational perspective you know, better and more from a more productive standpoint. We talk a lot, you know, on the show about employee experience and like what's that, what that means and who owns that. I'm curious, like from an employee experience standpoint, like what are you hearing from, from your peers, from fellow CTOs and CIOs um, about how they're kind of, you know, leading through the crisis? Yeah. And, um, you know, just thoughts go out to everyone who's leading through this right now. It's an unprecedented set of circumstances. I personally have been, you know, energized by the level of commitment. I think I've seen our customers show in innovating in terms of their work from home environments and in terms of continuing to lean into technology transformation. So I was talking to a good friend of mine who is a CIO at a major company yesterday. And his comment to me was, you know, we enabled, you know, many, 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 many thousands of folks to work from home within a couple of days, made sure that we suddenly had turned on all the capabilities to do that. We're designing everything we do to enable remote work now, as well as, you know, their leadership had said, like, how do we use this time to even further into our technology transformation? You know, so the, the thing I've seen from clients is they're saying, you know, don't waste a good crisis in a sense or a crisis. And um, let's, let's speed up our transformation coming out of this to, to be even stronger. And we have the new design point of an enabling remote work, enabling online and API services. So I, I do think we'll never kind of be the same as a society. And I do, I do think that remote work will certainly be more acceptable and obviously more practiced. Um, and I also think like the online experience um, and the API first experience uh, is going to be even more paramount than ever before. I mean, imagine how many industries were suddenly the only face, only way they're interfacing through their clients is purely through their connectivity. Yeah, it's one of those one of those funny things where, you know, that's how we more or less always did things with, you know, people overseas and stuff like that, whether it's phone calls and then, you know, every now and then you're going to send sales or whoever it is to, you know, go across the pond or, you know, head, head uh, you know, across the world to, to go do maybe the one in-person kind of meeting a year or whatever it is. It really helps our, our engagement with, you know, people that are much farther away, but the people that are just down the street now too, where, 
you know, it saves you a little bit of time, you know, to be able to have certain types of meetings and things like that. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous of like over meeting now that our, our, you know, in between meetings, you don't have to walk around anymore. But I do think that from a business standpoint, you know, figuring out how to deliver a customer experience that's 100% digital is really critical. Yeah. I, 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 that's, that's, that's well said. And it's no longer a slow evolution to that digital first world right now, if you put it that way, right? Like it is an immediate snap to um, the digital first companies are going to come out of the stronger than anyone. Um, and I think that uh, every leader who's even in a hybrid organization that you know has some traditional, some what you might call digital, they're definitely making that turn. So I, I've seen it creating you know demand uh, for a lot of technologies. Maybe the most famous, of course, what we're using right now, Zoom. But I think that, you know, there's a lot more technologies than that. So I think we're just doing our best to, to really be available for our clients and help them um, at any time of the day, uh, you know, navigate that. Yeah. I mean, you hear about these, like we were talking about, uh, you know, before we hopped on air, hearing about these companies that are doing integrations, 50,000 employees, 10,000 employees, 200,000 employees. Like, yeah, we were talking about this the other day about how important it is you know, more than ever to kind of figure out that your salespeople or your, you know, implementation teams or whoever it is are, you know, able and and ready to be able to withstand the people who are going to need to make a move immediately to adopt a new technology that supports, you know, the new normal. And it's like, you know, some businesses obviously are struggling a ton from, from this and others are like inundated with requests because they need to move to a, you know, 100% remote workforce immediately. Um, and that's, you know, takes a lot of effort and time and most companies aren't kind of built for that. Like, you know, we just always talk about scale, but like that type of scale is really tough to deal with. Yeah. I mean, our, our first priority is of course, keeping employees and customers healthy and, you know, making sure that everyone's healthy and safe. You know, after that, you know, we're, we're really saying, like, how do we help you respond, you know, whatever you're responding to? And I think, you know, as our discussion has touched upon, though, like that is thankfully been the 20 year trend that technology has been going on is to be dynamically scalable through APIs, uh, responsive to change. So in, in some ways, you know, thankfully, technology was already headed that direction. You know, things like Zoom and Slack were already, you know, products before the crisis. And, uh, so in some ways, I'm glad we have some of that bedrock in technology and we can continue to lean into that to at least help solve that problem during, during all of this uh, unprecedented time. So I want to go back a little bit into, uh, into your career at the kind of moment in time when Pivotal kind of came to be as, as the spin out or I don't know how you'd refer to it, but um, yeah, how involved were you in, in that? And like, why did you do it, decide that that was something you wanted to do? Uh, I'm curious, what was that kind of time like to be able to do something like that is kind of a unique experience. And then obviously coming back into the fold is a unique one as well. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think just honestly, like I was, we were a pre-revenue product at VMware and I was having all kinds of fun like you can have on a pre-revenue product, which was it was about kind of like developer feedback, technology conversations. I was getting to work with these, you know, brilliant folks, uh, you know, Mark Lukowski, Derek Collison, uh, Vadim Spivak, who were all, you know, these engineers coming from Google. And I was learning all about the future kind of from them and trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make this all into a successful product. 
but it was sort of, uh, you know, this halcyon kind of engineering collaboration fun times. And then suddenly they're like, Hey, by the way, we're going to spin you out into a company and it needs to go public <laughs> at some point, basically is the business plan. Yeah. It got really serious really fast in terms of like, you know, you asked like when my customer focus happened, right? It was, it was that year. Um, <laughs> I love that because, you know, I went from just enjoying the whiteboard sessions and the drinks after work, learning about technology to suddenly saying like, okay, we have X number of engineers that cost us X amount a year. We need to at least, you know, have customers giving us that amount. Like that was my very first thought, right? Like very basics. Uh, what my friend Scott Yara, uh, who's a really the creator of Pivotal along with Paul Moritz, refers to as the lemonade stand math. Like we had to have like some talks about, okay, what's our lemonade stand math? You know, the, the lemons and the sugar cost us this much. And so I ran around um, and did a little bit more customer facing work that summer. And we met some clients and we ended up, you know, selling $40 million worth of the platform in the first year. And no one really expected us to do that. Um, but that was sort of like the moment where I realized there was magic of being a connector between the research work and the development work as well as the client opportunity. Uh, so I think that's probably maybe the most fun story there. And that's, that's where the client, the client skills were learned under pressure, if you will. I love that story because it is the ultimate like startup versus big company mindset thing of, yeah. of like, over. Yeah, you turn on, you you hop into the pressure cooker and you're like, this thing is either, we're either going to be, you know, <laughs> delicious in, in 18 quarters or we're going to be uh, cooked. For the- I'll tell you, uh, you know, Scott Yara tells me the story that, that inspired me I, I, and he accredits to, to Bob Metcalf, who, you know, was a, um, you know, entrepreneur and inventor of, uh, you know, a little technology called Ethernet. And he told the story that, you know, people came to his nice house or whatever he had established himself in and said, Oh, did you, you know, build this by inventing ethernet or whatever? And he said, no, I, I built this by, you know, traveling the world and convincing people to buy the product associated with it. Yeah. Great point. That's the difference between being the academic engineer and, and really facing the point of consumption. So that was the really fun thing or pivotal was it was at first a pressure cooker, but also a great laboratory for, for seeing how that, that game is played. Well, and it's a great idea and it worked out kind of great for everyone, but it's a great lesson in innovation where it's like, if you have a group of people that are working on a project that are really smart inside your company, don't let them leave and go start a startup that like will never, um, you know, reap the benefits of everything inside the organization, right? It's like, figure out a way to keep those people engaged, but also, you know, keep their pressure on a little bit. I mean, I'd be curious if, if, if they, if they didn't make that decision, what would have happened to your team in terms of like, you know, delivery and all that sort of stuff. I, I mean, and, you know, it obviously came with a rebrand and then there's like this kind of speed to market and, and you kind of have the, the, you know, sexiness of a new thing. And like, I, you know, I, I'd be really curious, like, you know, if we could, if we could run, run the tables in, in both ways, well, how it would have been different. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I do know that my attitude was much more comfortable and gradual when I was at a, a big company that had tons of funding for us to continue to explore the technology, if you will. And um, it got 
very real when, uh, you know, I realized that if we didn't do something customers wanted, you know, we were well funded, we weren't going to go out of business tomorrow. But the sense that, you know, my friends wouldn't have good outcomes in this whole story, unless we really figure out a way of connecting with customers about it and solving real problems for them. I think that's where I forged a lot of friendships I'll never forget is just under that, you know, like real but fun pressure. Well, but it also seems like the way that you were able to get into the enterprise and work with like huge name customers, like huge logo customers right away, like, we're, yeah. like was that was part of the pitch just like, hey, yeah, we're this startup, but like we've been incubating this for a long time. And like, you know, we obviously have this like monster backing. And so like, trust us it's going to be okay. Cause that's part of the thing with you know, as, as you know, with investing, you know, into startups is like the, the speed and the flexibility and all that stuff that you get is a trade-off for the fact that you're like, there is that trust factor where like, is this company a going to be around and B, do they actually know what they're doing uh, to be able to secure this correctly and all of that? Yeah. And I think that was the perfect storm that we had at our back, which is why I was so committed to pushing hard which is that we did have some built-in institutional trust from these organizations that they at least wanted to hear our ideas, right? And they wanted to see that evolution of what this big bet was really all about. And, uh, you know, maybe one way of telling it is that, you know, we, some of us that were more customer facing at that time, we had the unfair advantage of having just spent three years with some of the smartest people in the world in these problems that had seen into the future. And then we can start to diffuse that and accelerate it out in the market. We, we sort of benefited from our schoolyard time as well. You know, we'd had, we'd thought about the problem a lot. And I like to call that like stalking a market. Like you don't learn everything about a market the first year you're in it. Like the mm. longer you've been working on a problem, the more asymmetric advantage you have in helping a CIO. So I haven't shifted a ton in my career because I feel like the problems of this, you know, distributed application infrastructure software are so challenging you know, you kind of have to keep stalking it and keep learning. Um, so it was, it was fun to talk to people about those problems. Last question before we get into our lightning round here. Um, are there any trends or technologies that you're particularly excited about right now or going forward? Uh, yeah, I think one problem that enterprises have is they've adopted this continuous delivery model for what you might call the more end user facing applications but they still sometimes have a real strict segmentation between the data side of their house and the application side of their house. So we've been looking at technologies like streaming and Kafka, well, which start to take what used to be this Hadoop MapReduce paradigm and refactor it more towards a more real-time event-centric you know, data buffering that, and, and brokering that allows both applications as well as analytics to consume it. And uh, I think that that really is a trend to follow in enterprises now as they've made their applications more agile. But I think integration and data and how all that's working is, is still an unsolved problem. And uh, I, I do think that that is sort of what's next uh, for, for these organizations is, you know, they've made individual teams uh, go faster uh, but I still think we can do a better job of bringing them all together and sharing data across teams, making data more real time. And that's just going to make the application so much more powerful. Uh, so I think that is definitely a, a trend to watch. And it allows you to do things that you might never have done before in an application, right? Like how can you do real time inventory management across thousands and thousands of stores and know exactly what your inventory might be in real time? 
that's a great example of a streaming application makes that pretty trivial for a developer to program versus doing it in a more brute force way. So there's some pretty exciting things in event-based uh, function as a service uh, and streaming that I think we're, uh, are the next frontier for some of what we're doing. Let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. You can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. We love Salesforce platform. The sponsor of this show from the first second that it is aired, check it out, salesforce.com slash platform, lightning round questions. James, are you ready? Yeah, first thing I say is, you know, thanks to San Francisco's own Mark Benioff for his leadership during this time. He's been a, a great model for San Francisco. So thank you, Mark, and thanks for being a sponsor. But uh, as a local, I'm super appreciative of all he does. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's it really is private enterprise is, is stepping up in a major way uh, in with speed and flexibility and agility that is pretty amazing. Like Apple just announced a huge thing today. And like, it just seems like every other day, the, you know, for lack of a better term, coalition of the willing here is, uh, is pretty, pretty amazing to see from technology stepping up, not just with the technology that we all use to communicate with each other, but also with actual companies putting effort, energy and resources behind trying to solve problems. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's great to see. What app on your phone is the most fun? You boy, for me, it's got to be iMessage with my friends, and that shows you how old and boring I am. But I, I think uh, I'd be I'd be lost if I I couldn't uh, emote uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, exclamation point all day long, discussing everything that's going on in the world with some of my trusted friends. So that's probably my favorite message. I iMessage on my phone, my favorite app. Favorite podcast or book that you've listened to or read recently? I am a junkie of software engineering daily. I'm super thankful that that exists. Um, they put out tons of great content in depth on these otherwise what some might consider arcane technologies, but which I'm always excited to learn about. So Software Engineering Daily is definitely my favorite podcast. Shout out. What is your best advice for a first-time CTO? My best advice for a first-time CTO is that it's really, really deeply about the team dynamics and making sure that the team is supporting each other and that you're setting a, a culture of both intellectual passion and curiosity and, and technical understanding, but also making sure that you're not talking past each other and you're supporting each other's goals and rallying around a, a shared vision. So shared values, high trust, shared vision um, is the magic on top of the technical understanding, I think. Hidden talent or passion? Uh, I, I, like to, I like to write tweets. Uh, and uh, some, sometimes, uh, you know, people say I put words together in an interesting way I didn't expect. So uh, I, I, I guess I like writing a tweet level, uh, tweet level things. Some people, some way. I love it. Um, what do you do for fun? You know, actually my fun, and this will sound super nerdy, I love taking a walk around San Francisco. It's so beautiful uh, along the Embarcadero or up in the hills and just listen to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, that's when I feel really lucky just to be part of everything that's going on in uh, innovation in the valley and uh, living it firsthand uh, while also walking out in nature. And uh, those two things together make me pretty happy. By the way, I should say Waters James is the Twitter handle, right? That's right. Yeah. Last name, first name. Check it out, everyone. It's got some good stuff. Final question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? <laughs> uh, what question do I never get asked? You know, maybe like what's going to be hard about this? 
you know, so my, my favorite moments with clients is when the, there's such a high trust of communication is when I can tell them, here's where to focus and here's where you may face challenges and know that, you know, any hint of um, caution from me isn't going to result in them stopping everything they're doing. It's just going to further our trust. So I think, you know, great partners come to each other and they say, look, here's what's going to be hard. Here's what should work. And just really sharing that learning um, as opposed to just spinning or just discussing the benefits only side of the equation. Awesome. That's it. That's all we got. Awesome. Um, any, any final thoughts, any things to plug? You know, just uh, in the project we're working on, the brand is called uh, Tanzu. So check out everything Tanzu at VMware. Awesome. Thanks again. And, uh, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Stay safe. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.